This is John Anderson Direct with Peter Robinson. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Today I'm, I'm deeply honoured to be joined by Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in California. Peter graduated from Dartmouth College, Oxford University after that, and then later with an MBA from Stanford, which he said he found tough, at least in its first year or so, because he wasn't an expert on quantitative methodology. But before becoming what he is now, a deeply respected and widely followed commentator, he was a speechwriter for President Reagan. He famously helped craft the 1987 Brandenburg Gate speech that had in it that immortal line, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, Peter's written books on American politics, uh, and in particular, the way in which President Reagan, a remarkable man, really, by any definition, if anyone has a heart for genuine history, uh, and the way in which Mr. Reagan impacted on him, he continues to make profoundly valuable contributions to the public square via his ever informative and engaging podcast series, Uncommon Knowledge. I, I really recommend it. He, like me, is doing everything he can to bring good thinking and civil discourse into the public arena when we've become, frankly, so sick of the way people talk to one another, shout one another down, and the way the mainstream media behaves. So um, it's a real honour to have uh, Peter with me. And, and thank you so much, Peter, for joining me. John, my pleasure. And the honour is mine. All I've ever done in my life is sit at a keyboard and type or sit in front of a microphone and talk. You led a great party in a great nation and you were deputy prime minister of a government. You took responsibility for things and made things happen. So the honour is mine. And I'll arm wrestle you over that one at some point if necessary. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to that. And let's hope one day that we're all able to move around a little bit. Um, but can I just uh, ask you first up, uh, you know, we hear horrendous stories in Australia about the, whether you call it the, uh, the latest stage of the first round of COVID or it's the second wave in Europe and America, devastating reports coming out of America. How are you personally? How are your fellow Americans? Well, Honestly, I think we're all just sick of it, just sick of it. There's still, it's very strange. It's very eerie. I live in faculty housing on the edge of the Stanford campus. And so over my shoulder, I could get on my bike and pedal two or three times and then coast downhill. And in three minutes, I'd be in the middle of the Stanford campus. Here we have a great university with billions of dollars of research facilities, classrooms, a great library, and it's almost entirely empty. Some of the research facilities are up and running again under all kinds of very strict uh, conditions. There are some graduate students, no undergraduate students at all. And again, the, the feeling, well, you know, a university should be full of life, and this place is nearly empty. It's, it's eerie, and it's unnerving. You've been through it all as well, so you know what I mean. The additional difficulty here is that, two, I guess, the sickness, the illness, the, the, the virus is one matter, but it has opened up a divide 
actually, I'd be very interested to hear if something like this has happened in Australia as well. There is, it, I don't know how else to describe a demographic divide or a class divide. The people, this is broadly speaking, and of course there will be exceptions, but the people most worried about the virus are the ones who can work at home without losing a paycheck. I visited, uh, earlier this week, I was clear on the other side of the country, visiting Dartmouth College, where I have a child who was just my youngest, just finished her first term there. And again, broadly speaking, there are exceptions. The faculty are the ones who are most concerned about COVID, masking up even when they're outdoors and so forth. They're not going to miss the, they're, and they're teaching remotely. They're not going into the classroom. Full pay, full benefits, jobs not at risk at all. Contrast that, walk around the town of Hanover, go into a restaurant and talk to a waiter or talk to somebody who's behind the desk at a, at a hotel. Or I happened, I needed to get some packing tape to help my daughter pack up and I had a conversation with a fellow who runs the hardware shop. And they all say, well, we had it in February, we had it in January, I've been through it, life goes on. We've got to get out there and earn a living. So there's this, this divide. I, a friend of mine said it once said there really hasn't been a lockdown, a national lockdown. There have been middle-class people working at home and working-class people delivering stuff to them. So there, that, that's, not, that's not quite right, really. It shouldn't be that way. That's going on. And then the other bit is, We've got public officials who are locking down and engaging in measures so stringent that they would have been unthinkable just a few months ago, and they can't explain themselves. Nobody knows how serious the disease is. Nobody can explain the spread. You go, you look to Asia, and they, well, some Asian countries have been doing better. Well, actually, South Korea and Taiwan and Japan and China have all approached it in entirely different ways and yet had similar results. Why? Can't answer that question. Africa has been only mildly affected. Why? Can't answer that question. What about the differences in the different approaches in Europe? Why has Sweden not had a much worse, uh, which didn't lock down uh, in the same way that the rest of Europe did? Why have they not had a dramatically worse outcome? Can't answer that question. And so there's this absence of the ability of public officials to say, why they're doing what they're doing. There's also an absence of the color of law, frankly. Frankly, there's, they're not explaining under what authority we're telling you. Local officials are saying you must do this, you must do that, um, and there and there's no consciousness that this is such a dire that these are such dire intrusions in the into the ordinary rights of Americans that they should at least time limit it. This is going to happen for two weeks, or this will happen for one month, and then we'll reexamine this. This is not taking place at all. And I give you one final so. So you get this class division, you get the feeling that the people who are in charge and barking out orders at the rest of us don't really know what they're doing. And then I just give you one incident. Last week, two things happened here in California. Our governor told us that for Thanksgiving dinner, which will take place in this country this coming Thursday, we're all supposed to gather in groups of, I can't remember the number, no more than 10, I think, in each home. You should have your dinner outdoors. It should last no more than two hours. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was that the governor went to a dinner with 10 or a dozen people 
indoors, no masks, at something called the French Laundry, which is one of the most expensive restaurants in all of California. And he got caught. People took pictures of him sitting at that, at that restaurant unmasked. So then you've, you've got this, you can see all the kinds of psychological twists and torques here where ordinary people feel that their, their governors, their betters, don't know quite why they're doing, why they're telling us all to live the way they're telling us to live, and they don't believe the rules apply to them. As I say, the disease is one thing, but you're, you're a professional. You've dealt in politics. When you, get, when you get the ruling class, so to speak, up behaving in one way and expecting the rest of us to behave in another way, this is just not a healthy situation. In many ways, I think in our country, it's been a little different. We have a stronger federal system and people have been surprisingly, in my way of thinking, to my way of thinking, preoccupied with the health outcomes, not the economic or even indeed the social health issues over the medical issues. And in a way that's a bit surprised me, they've, they've accepted some pretty tough instructions that have interfered with their lives a lot. But there's some divisions opening up that I think are really important. One is the old distinction between intellect and muscle. Um, somebody has had to go on out there growing the food, transporting it, uh, processing it, putting it on the supermarket shelves, providing the health services. What about those people? A lot of people have not had the luxury of shutting down and living a sort of monkish lifestyle. They have not had that option. And I hope it's been a bit of an eye-opener to people that we need to be less selfish and more thankful to people who have kept on going and thus expose themselves to more risk. But the people who are really exposed to risk, I think, are our young people. I'm, I'm very concerned about the divide that we're opening up there because we know that it's having a disproportionate effect on their mental health. We know that it's interrupting their education. It's restricting their employment opportunities even though they are at much, much lower risk, in fact, incredibly low risk, coupled with that is the very serious problem, though, that they are going to inherit the almost unthinkable debt levels that we are building up. Because you've had governments, this is extraordinary when you stop and think about it, deliberately inducing effectively a recession and then trying to counter it with massive levels of public expenditure and the idea seems to have emerged, if I can say it, right around the West, including in our country, that debt doesn't matter. Well, it will matter, and our children are going to pay a real price. It will. It will. It will. Those least at risk will suffer the most. That is just not, it's just not sensible. It's just not sensible. So this is not good. The, to answer, how are things going with COVID? The answer is not at all well, John, and thank you. Can I just ask then, can you give us a helicopter view of the role you think it's played in the election that you've just held? Uh, I suppose the impression I have from afar is that if it had not been for COVID, two-part question really, if COVID hadn't happened, my guess is that uh, uh, Trump would have been returned as your president. Uh, perhaps even if COVID had happened and he had handled it differently, the result might have been the same. So am I jumping too far to say that COVID's had a profound effect on America politically? COVID and Donald Trump cost Donald Trump the election. Uh, that if COVID hadn't happened and we had continued economic growth in the high 2% uh, 
2.7, 2.8, even if it dropped 2.4, above 2% a year GDP growth, coupled with, and this is what it was exceptional about the economic growth that we were experiencing up until, what, six months ago now, coupled with the sharpest drop in the poverty level in half a century, African-Americans and Hispanics were enjoying the lowest unemployment level ever recorded. So what you got was, for the first time in decades, an economic expansion that directly benefited ordinary working people and even disadvantaged minorities just unquestionably in a way that they could feel and experience that we could all see. COVID just stopped that. It just stopped it. And then Donald Trump, honestly, in my opinion, well, again, you're a professional. You'd have to tell me what you think. But he didn't help himself. We now know, we know in this much, people will be studying the results of this election for weeks to come, for years to come, for that matter. But we now know that Donald Trump, he, he gained in a number of areas. He gained among Hispanics, and he gained not a great deal, but he gained some in the black vote. He gained among Asians. This is dramatic for a Republican president to pick up minority votes. But he lost the older voters. And it seems quite clear that people, older people were frightened, just scared of COVID, and he failed to reassure them. If you tick down the policies, it's really very hard. You, 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 you draw a chart. Here's what we knew. Here's what we learned. Here's what Trump did. We learned this. He responded this way. He le- the policies were perfectly reasonable and in a number of ways, very impressive. This so-called Operation Warp Speed. Now we're going to get vaccines. It looks I just read this morning that Pfizer is applying to the FDA for approval of its vaccine next week. A vaccine in a period of months, not years, that's just exceptional. And Trump and his administration played a role in that. But the policies are one thing, and the way he spoke and his demeanor and the way he clearly didn't want to wear a mask, all of that unnerved people. In my judgment, in some ways, his fundamental instinct that the health experts were pushing the country to lock down too hard. The instinct to question that but was almost certainly correct. But he unnerved people, frightened people, failed to reassure people. He failed to act. Uh, I hate to use the term because it's so cliche, but you'll know what I mean. He failed to act in a presidential way. And he lost. A, that's one place where he lost ground in Arizona. For sure, it seems to have cost him. It cost him a state in Arizona. It may have cost him several other states that, that you could name. So yes, absent COVID, the man who would be getting ready to take the oath of office in January would be Donald Trump instead of Joe Biden. It's um, an interesting thing to contemplate, though, that as I look at it, I mean, I, I do, I was always deeply concerned about his apparent reluctance, as I looked on from an outsider, and I want to be careful here, it's not for me to be gratuitously uh, commenting too much, although our media do it all the time, on your affairs. But what happens in America is very important to the rest of the world, and especially to Australia. Um, that uh, reluctance to reach out to the enemies and try and build the bridges and friendships. Now, I can understand the hypocrisy of many of his critics who say that he was ruining democracy. Well, democracy's not being ruined in America. The system and the people are more robust and above that. It, it, as I said, it's not broken. But it does seem to me that there are two enormous problems arising. One is that 
his opponents now are dancing on his grave in a way that must make it very difficult to know how to rebuild. They don't seem interested themselves in doing what they accused him of never doing, which is reaching out and building bridges. The president-elect has made some good noises, but it's not what you're getting from his broader opponentry, if I can put it that way. And the second thing is that the hard questions about why so many American people were very reluctant to embrace the democratic platform is not being argued. Exactly. I mean, what is it? It's just not good enough to say 72 or 73 million of my fellow country people, I suppose that's the way to put it, um, you know, still chose after all that to run with President Trump. Why? How can a democracy work if that question is not asked in good faith. Here are my fellow Americans. They have a different view despite everything. What are they saying? Why do they feel distrustful and dispossessed? How do we rebuild because disunity is death? Yes, I agree completely. This is, it is impossible. I mean, just flatly impossible in my judgment to read this election as a repudiation of Donald Trump. He did better than any of the polls. Then all, there were a couple of polls that got it about right, but in, he did better than the polls and the mainstream media expected. And this is the critical point. He got close to 9 million more votes this time than he did last time around. Of course, Joe Biden outpolled Hillary Clinton by something like 11 million votes. We had an enormous increase in participation. But you can't say that the country repudiated Donald Trump. That's exactly right. There's something like 70 million people who voted for him. Um, to my mind, it's, it, it, it's almost it, the, the way that the people who accuse Trump of defying norms or endangering democracy themselves did so. The, the kind of precision with which they were guilty of their own accusations is just amazing. So there's a long theme there. We could talk about that alone for hours. But let me just say the press, most of the press, overwhelmingly the press, with only a couple of exceptions, and the honorable exceptions would be those by your fellow, the media outlets founded or owned by your fellow Australians, the Murdochs, the Wall Street Journal in particular, and Fox News, of course, and the New York Post, aside from really those three outlets, aside from those and some outlets online, the mainstream, the incuriosity of the mainstream media, the failure to attempt to understand why roughly half the country, just as you put it, why roughly half the country insisted on voting for Donald Trump is just astounding, as is the failure to ask questions of health officials of exactly the kind that you outlined. The way the press has become partisan isn't quite, they're not partisan in the sense that they favor the Democratic Party. It's almost, it's, it's worse than that. There's a, it, they've become even great newspapers and even highly educated, very intellectually refined reporters are now producing ham-fisted propaganda. I don't see any other way to put it than that. It's extremely dangerous, as I see it. I, I, I can only say that it, it really worries me because it's a Western-wide problem. Uh, it, it really is. And well, part of the 
the response to it, of course, is precisely what you and I are doing now. People everywhere are going offline, so to speak, uh, to, uh, uh, to, and more and more people are getting their news services and their information outside the mainstream, and yet mainstream doesn't seem to be learning the lessons. They could draw people back with high-quality, objective, fair analysis. I, I genuinely believe that. I think there's no doubt. By the way, I I have to be careful. John, I want to take back. I don't want to take back. I want to amend something I said a moment ago that Donald Trump cost himself the election. Everything I said, I believe to be true. At the same time, though, I believe one reason. I don't know that I could say it's the leading reason, but it may be. One reason people supported him with such energy that he got nine million more votes this time around than last time around is because he talked back. Donald Trump talked back. He talked yeah. back to the media. He talked back to the universities. And I, people forgave him a great deal because there he was saying things that ordinary people felt and were not in a position to say. In some ways, it took a vulgar, loudmouth billionaire, only somebody of that character and in that position could talk back. People forgave him a lot because he was saying things that were on ordinary, many ordinary Americans' minds. This, um, that, that he lost and that in, all, in many ways he cost himself the election. Uh, I, on, on the other side in this country, there's great joy. People are dancing on his grave, as you said, on his political grave. I view the whole thing as tragic because up until six months ago, what do those figures mean? that African-Americans and Hispanics had the lowest unemployment rates ever recorded. It means that millions of people who are in underprivileged positions, who start out in the more difficult positions in American society, were leading better lives. They were, they, they, they were able to act on their aspirations. And, and that, that loudmouth New Yorker standing up to the the, to the liberal or progressive media consensus, that man was responsible for enabling millions of Americans to lead better lives. And now it has all collapsed. And that, to me, it's tragic. It's a, what we've just experienced in tragedy. Uh, and yet I, only, I think the day before yesterday here in Australia, I heard a prominent American commentator glibly saying, well, we had to get rid of him because he was such a terrible racist. If he was such a terrible racist, how did it come to pass that he actually increased his support amongst many non-white Americans? Exactly right. Anyway, um, the, it does seem to me, though, that in many ways he's changed the landscape. Uh, there's one aspect of that that might be very worrying. Given the way many people around the world have behaved, the message seems to be that if you hold to what might be loosely called traditional or, or, or moderate or conservative in the true sense of the word, uh, political beliefs. The message may be, look, it's just not worth even trying uh, because you'll never be treated with respect. So only people who behave very badly can break through. That is one of the things that in this polarised world that uh, uh, the, uh, the, those who hold the microphones today are creating, that, that, that perhaps that's what they want, but that's going to be part of the fruit. But there's another aspect of this, Peter, that seems very important to me. Um, 
despite uh, everything, I would have thought a great deal of what Donald Trump had achieved uh, and the priorities that he'd established will not in fact be repudiated for two reasons. One is that, for example, internationally, we know that although many of us in outside of America were worried that he was, you know, make America first, America should wind back from its global leadership, putting that aside, nonetheless, he did some things that I think think the Middle East think um, uh, particularly China, he built some cats that no previous president seemed to have been prepared to take on, which urgently needed addressing. That's one reason, one area where I don't think his policies will be completely repudiated. The other is the Senate. And that's, of course, going to be very interesting indeed. But can we come to the first? There are some areas where I just don't think Trumpism's policies or Trump's policies uh, will, will in fact be reputed, repudiated by Americans. <coughs> Excuse me. I couldn't agree more. On China, he's done something dramatic. I think he's done something historic. He has achieved a bipartisan consensus that China rep- represents an adversary for us and for our allies, including you, and that we must find ways of standing up to them and dealing with them. Before he was elected, or, or you can someplace, someplace on YouTube, I saw a clip the other day where somebody had put together comments by Joe Biden over many years uh, saying that we, we welcome the growth of China. China is a friend, not an adversary. By the way, in fairness to Joe Biden, that was the consensus view in the United States for years. I can remember in the Reagan White House, all the way back to the Reagan White House, President Reagan visited uh, China and gave a speech at Fudan University in which we all supposed that China would follow the same path, roughly, as South Korea and Taiwan, where economic growth would lead to political freedoms and ultimately to democracy. And Donald Trump spotted that that just was not happening and stood up to them. And Joe Biden, the whole... to the to the extent I don't myself like the term deep state because it sounds too sinister, but there is a permanent bureaucracy in Washington. <clears throat> and that permanent, it, it reminds me, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Ronald Reagan takes off. First of all, Reagan stands up to the Soviet Union, renews the American commitment to containment. And then what happens is that, uh, and the polls showed that the American people were only partly with him. Then an event takes place that you will remember. The Soviets shot down a Korean passenger liner, KAL, what was it, Korean Airlines, I can't remember the number. And almost overnight, the polls solidified behind Ronald Reagan. Donald Trump goes into office saying, China is a problem. And then COVID happens. And whatever you may say about the way we failed to handle COVID or the way the Europeans failed to handle COVID, it is clear that the Chinese were up to no good. It is now a matter of record that President Xi shut down internal travel from Wuhan to the rest of China, but permitted travel to the rest of the world for once, and thereby all but ensuring that that infection would carry around to the rest of the world. And that, that solidified opinion behind, it was a kind of seminal event, I think, where everybody now understood that we had a real problem in our hands in, in China. Of course, you would know much more about that than we, because there you are facing China in a way that we're not quite. Well, it's a, as you say, it's a very much a global problem because 
you know, you've got massive, if you like, uh, uh, argument over completely different worldviews between nations and a lot of opposition to the West from other nations, from non-Western nations. But we've also got this problem that we're eating ourselves out from within. Uh, we have many within our own culture who now uh, want to break down everything that we believe in. In fact, I don't think it's too far to say that cultural Marxism has taken a great hold and many people are voluntarily taking on the idea that a more totalitarian management from government, more statism would be a good thing. That's the drift of it. That would have horrified the man that you work with so closely in Ronald Reagan. And of course, the thought was that when the Berlin Wall did come down, that was, as Fukuyama put it, the end of history. Democracy had won out. Now it seems that we face enormous threats to free, open, trustworthy uh, or trust-based societies uh, offering so much as they have in the past to the future as well because we no longer believe in it. However, has this come about? That's a big one. It's, it's honestly, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels to me, I mean, there were moments during the election. How has it come about? Here's one way of putting the question. How do we go and Ronald Reagan to forgive me because he's a Tory, but to Boris Johnson and Joe Biden. That's there's a there's a there's a very famous line in the education of Henry Adams, who was a, an author in the 19th century, and who said that the progress in the United States or the uh, from George Washington and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson to Ulysses Grant disproved Darwin's theory of evolution, and it almost it almost feels that way. All, my first, what I feel more and more, but I don't know that I'm right. I honestly don't know that I'm right. This is one of those puzzles of history. What I, what I feel more and more, and you tell me what you think, is that I recall when I was a kid, when I went to university, I was instructed, I, I was just, I was at my alma mater this past weekend, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and I remembered an English professor of mine, Harry Schultz. Harry Schultz had, had been captured by the Germans during the Second World War and spent half of the war in a German prisoner of war camp. Well, I was instructed by a man who'd suffered war. My parents' generation understood the Depression. When the Soviet Union reared up, People I worked for, first George H.W. Bush, who had fought in the Second World War and been shot down and plucked out of the water by a U.S. submarine as the Japanese were uh, making plans to get him. And, and then, of course, I worked for Ronald Reagan. Reagan had a bad eyesight, so he didn't serve in combat, but he again served in the Second World War. These were, I don't know, John, you, you tell me about this, but I, these were grown-ups. That whole generation had known suffer. They knew when things went wrong that they could go very wrong, that this was a serious business, that politics was serious. It wasn't a game. And also, I think of this as well, the journalists. I don't know if these names 
but Walter Cronkite, who was the what perhaps the most famous news broadcaster in the 80s when I was in the White House, CBS News, Walter Cronkite, the evening broadcast. Walter Cronkite flew with troops in a glider, through with, flew with American troops as part of the Normandy invasion so that he could report on it. He risked for, for journalism. That's a lot different. That's just, so it almost feels as though what, what is it that each generation we're good for two or three generations and then we have to and then the, then a generation has to experience for itself what the, what is at stake it has to make that discovery itself now that is not a good way to go about business but I'm beginning to think that it's necessary and I will now submit that possibility to you what do you think uh, well I think there's a lot to be said for it my own father almost lost his life wasn't expected to live uh, in the Middle East, the, the battle against Rommel, which of course was the first turning point for the Allies during the Second World War. In the end, the famous Ninth under Montgomery. Division. How did how did the Australians serve in those days? Where where, was, had, where was he? Uh, he was in the Middle East. Um, uh, Montgomery came later. Uh, three Australian divisions went to the Middle East. Two came home when Japan entered the war. Were brought home. One was left there, and Rommel himself regarded them as the most effective fighters of all. Um, the Australian Ninth Division, but. Um, so I grew up, in a sense, in the shadow of war because my father had been through it. And he never played the victim, but he could have, which is an interesting reflection, uh, you know, on, on the way in which now so many people who have, I'm sorry to say it, relatively little to complain of, now see themselves to be terrible victims. There are terrible victims, but a lot of the people who claim to be victims have a great deal more to be thankful for than to claim victimhood over, in my view. So I, I do think there's some truth to your, a lot of truth to your say. I mean, I think you Americans have an expression, the greatest generation. They, so they went through wars, they went through depressions, they went through the Cold War. They saw the utter, utter horror uh, of uh, the gas chambers, you know, when all of that was revealed and they understood that the dividing line between uh, a good outcome and an evil one is very finely balanced indeed. And it depends upon us recognising our own capabilities for doing horrendous things. That's all washed out now in a surge of self-righteousness that seems to me to be unbelievable. Uh, and, and these things are, are in the balance in terms of, I think, where, where we go as a culture. I, I, I deeply and genuinely believe that's why I do what I do now. I mean, I could just sort of retire away, as many people I'm sure would like me to do, and uh, vegetate away as a farmer. Uh, but um, can I come back to where America goes now? Because the American people have not given the incoming regime a blank check. They haven't done that. We've already said one of the great problems seems to be, because we've got this in our country too, the lack of humility on the part of those who should say, wow, we thought we were going to cream it in. We thought we had the people with us. Well, mind you, a lot of them don't really believe in democracy. A lot of modern elites and technocrats, we always have to have elites. There are always leaders. You just want to make sure you get the right leaders and the right technocrats, I suppose you'd say. And they're people who believe in the, you know, the worth and the dignity of ordinary citizens. Today's elites seem to believe less and less in that. I don't know that they'll be asking themselves the right questions. Why have we not been given carte blanche to do the things that we said we were going to do? I reckon uh, the incoming president, uh, assuming uh, that's the right terminology to use about uh, uh, Mr. Biden, he's probably the man hoping most of all, is he not, that the uh, Republicans contain, control the Senate. It might help him fight off 
some of the really extreme views of those in uh, his own team. Yes. Joe, the, um, the polls predicted and the mainstream media were only too happy to trumpet the polls a blue wave, that the Democrats would not only take the White House, but they'd sweep the Senate and sweep the House of Representatives. They'd recapture control of the Senate and increase their majority in the House. And they won the White House. It, it now appears there's there's disputes and legal actions still taking place. But I personally, I, I, I haven't read it as closely as perhaps I should, but it doesn't look to me as though it's going to be possible. There were irregularities, fraud around the edges. There, in any election where over 100 million votes get cast, you can expect some of that. I don't see how the result could be overturned. Set that aside. The Senate, Republicans have not, the Senate now, there are uh, 50, see, that's right, it's 50 to 48. Republicans now hold 50. Democrats hold 48. There are two seats to be decided in Georgia yet. Georgia, like two or three other southern states, has a runoff rule such that if no candidates wins over 50 percent in the first round election, they'll hold a special runoff election. And in this case, I believe they set the date now for December, I beg your pardon, for January 4th. And the final two seats in the Senate will be decided in Georgia. It seems to me clear that the Republicans will win at least one of those. Probably, if I had to put money on it, come to think of it, I might put money on it. There's a new site I've discovered that takes, I might do a bit, I may try to earn a, a, few, a few quid off that one. <clears throat> but the Republicans will remain in control, narrowly in control, but will remain in control in the Senate. The, in some ways, an even bigger story has been the House of Representatives where there are still something like 10 seats that are undecided. Republicans lead very narrowly in at least five of those seats, and they've already picked up eight seats. So the Democratic majority in the House has shrunk when they were expecting it to expand. So every grown-up in the Democratic Party is saying, well, now, wait a moment. We looks as though we got rid of Trump, but we didn't get rid of... We don't have the Senate, and our majority in the House is so narrow that on any major piece of legislation, we're, if we lose 10 or a dozen or 15 votes to the Republicans, uh, bear in mind, of course, that we're talking about a chamber with 435 members, losing 10 or 15 members on a vote is not at all an unusual thing, then we, the Democrats, would lose that vote. So Joe Biden, I was about to say Joe Biden is hemmed in. Here's, here's the correct way to put it. The basic institutions of the Republic remain safe. For at least a few more years. Biden is not going to come under realistic pressure to pack the Supreme Court because he could never get that through the Senate. He's not going to come under in the Senate itself. They're not going to eliminate the filibuster because the Republicans won't have it. The concern, my concern was that if there was a so-called blue wave, if the Democrat, if morale among the Democrats was was very high because they'd expanded the majority in the House, recaptured the Senate, <clears throat> then Biden would be unable to resist the left wing of the party and the Democrats would make permanent changes to the basic structures. They pack the court, the Supreme Court, they'd eliminate the filibuster. They bring in Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia as states and add four, four essentially permanently Democratic seats to the Senate. That, that, to my mind, that was the real risk 
that the left of the Democratic Party wanted to, they were the ones who wanted an end to history. They wanted an end state of American politics that left them permanently in charge. That won't happen because the American voters won't have it. Yeah, well, in the end, uh, it does come back to this willingness to listen to what the voters are really saying that should be incumbent upon all political leaders uh, and no longer seems to be. Uh, I know in our country there are certainly those who think that the, the voters get it wrong, we know better, so we'll find ways to circumvent their wishes. Now, that really is a very patronising, a very proud, a very inappropriate and a very unwise stance to take, but it's quite widespread. Um, but I want to come, you know, and it feeds into my next question. I'd just be interested in your feelings on this. You've mentioned that, you know, the pollsters got it wrong. Everybody's talking about that. They got Brexit wrong. They got the last Australian election wrong. They got 2016 wrong. They certainly got this one wrong. Everyone's down on the pollsters. But there's a part of me that's saying, no, hang on. There's another deeper question that ought to be asked here by the elites. Why are people not telling the pollsters what they really think? Doesn't it say something profound about the way in which people are now feeling obliged to say things that they don't believe to be true and even uh, to contradict their own conscience? Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. It reminds me, I went to a talk, oh, this must be something like at least 15 years ago. It was before the political correctness became as virulent as you just suggested it has now become. Nathan Sharansky had a new book out. This is the thing. He was a, mm. um, a Jewish refusenik and spent many years in prison in the Soviet Union. And now he's a prominent parliamentarian in Israel. He had a new book out. He's speaking. He was speaking here at the Stanford campus. And he said that if you wanted to sum up the Soviet, Soviet existence, that was what it came to, that you were forced to repeat lies. You were, were forced in public to say things that you knew to be untrue. You, in your family, when you're absolutely certain you were among yourselves, you could tell the truth. But in school, in the workplace, in, in, a, in, in a store, in the street, you had to say things that you knew were untrue. And that was deeply corrosive of, of the human spirit. Now, we're not the Soviet Union, but People feel intimidated. People feel, ordinary Americans feel intimidated. I was talking to a friend who said four years ago, here in Northern California, which is a liberal part of the country, he wouldn't put a Trump poster in his yard, Trump for president placard in his front yard because he was afraid it would get stolen. Here we are four years later. This time he and his wife wouldn't do it because they were afraid somebody would throw a brick through their window. That, 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 increase in in the level of intimidation that people feel and again this is why trump got nine more million votes this time around than he did four years ago but yes i i i agree completely that that's that's the canary in the coal mine in american politics that people don't feel at liberty to tell pollsters what they really think Ronald Reagan, of course, was brilliant at using humour to highlight that, that, that whole corrosive influence of people not being able to tell the truth. I remember he used to tell a story about, uh, or he told a story about uh, going out somewhere into a rural area of Russia, whether he did or not, I don't know. Uh, but the story was along the lines of the, uh, you know, the, the man from Moscow coming to inquire about the crops. 
you know, how's the wheat? And he's told by the collective farm manager, oh, wheat, there's so much of it. We, you know, we don't know where to store it all. And what about the potatoes? Oh, the potatoes, why are there so many of them? They reach to the sky. They reach to the very heavens themselves. To which, uh, and he was told, no, 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 we don't do heaven. There is no God. To which the farm manager replied, well, that's a good thing because there's no wheat and there's no potatoes either. Not that I can do a Reagan impersonation. Where That wasn't your line, was it? No, 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 that wasn't my, no, no. He, he loved, first of all, he had a huge collection of jokes and he had a tremendous memory. So he never forgot a joke. But he used to, everybody who went to the Soviet Union, he used to love jokes that were being told in the Soviet Union. So people, <laughs> ambassadors, diplomats, when they heard a new joke, they'd bring it back to the president. There was another one, Russian lady goes to the, um, goes to the store and, and buys herself a, little soviet refrigerator and the, the salesman says thank you very much madam uh, we'll deliver that in six months and she says six months to the very day and he said well i suppose so i don't see what difference it makes but i suppose and she said well will you be coming in the morning or the afternoon and he said but but what difference could it possibly make and the lady replied well the plumber is coming in the morning <laughs> Before we come to Ronald Reagan, because I'd be very interested in your views of the man and the role where he really belongs in history, um, if you can be unbiased, because I know you regarded him as so highly from a personal point of view, hard to disentangle yourself, but he had a remarkable impact. But before we do, I just want to tease out a little bit more this, um, this ugliness that we're getting from those who think they know best. You've had uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, is that how she pronounce it? Um, and uh, high, uh, here's another one, high-profile journalist. To be fair, the new president is reaching out. He's saying, time now to all be Americans. But now you've got these people, uh, like, and Jennifer Rubin, another one from the Washington Post, calling for a cancel list of those who helped Trump over the years. And Rubin wrote, I'm quoting, I find this unbelievable, a senior journalist, it's not only that Trump has to lose, but that all his enablers have to lose. We have to collectively, in essence, burn down the Republican Party, Republican Party. We have to level them because if there are survivors, if there are people who weather this storm, they will do it again. Has this woman no understanding of history and no respect for the dignity and beliefs and rights of the freedom of conscience of her fellow Americans? John, I don't know how to explain. You touch it. You touch a, a, a nerve with me on that one because Jen Rubin, I used to consider Jennifer Rubin a friend. She used to be quite conservative and a very reasonable and a totally delightful person. And this is that what she what you just that's poison. She has written. She has she has she has dipped her pen in poison to produce that. I don't know how to explain it, except that this notion it was it's over here. It's uh, Trump TD TDS Trump derangement syndrome, which gets tossed around <laughs> as a kind of joke. Right. But it does seem to be the case that he really has in some way that people really have become deranged by the politics we've gone through in these last four years. So I can't, I can't explain that except to say that it's outrageous. I can't explain it, but I can certainly condemn it. This, this is this problem, isn't it? I think she should be uh, ashamed of uh, herself. And I say that of someone who was a friend. And this is, so I think it's your Arthur Brooks who's uh, sort of coined this concept that you can see anger but it's in America 
and in the West, and there's a lot of anger, it's when it's coupled with disgust that you then get contempt. Oh, these people should be simply cancelled. We shouldn't have to hear them. They're subhuman. And at that point, you know, why can't these people understand that that's precisely what gives rise to the things they say they don't like? A reaction, because my personal view is, I mean, for a long time, that people who say Trump's the problem are misunderstanding things completely, if that's their perspective. They ought to be recognising Trump was the result of people feeling cut out, same as Brexit, people feeling not listened to, feeling that their values were being, to use the word, trumped and dismissed. I agree. I agree. I agree. These are, I agree. I'm, 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 I'm at a loss here because it, your underlying question is, explain it. Why? How have we come to this? And I can't explain it. It's probably I just rhetorical. cannot explain it. But I did, well, I, I, and I understand I'm probably being unfair, but just on this whole issue, late last year, you said something that I thought was really interesting. You said this, there is indeed an existential threat to the freedom of thought, conscience and expression, which are indispensable to our democracy, but it does not come from Donald Trump. Who were you talking about? Can I put it that way? I said that. That was really quite well put. Yeah, it's beautifully. That's why I used it. You're a master craftsman with the English language, an American who writes English well. I, I, I have no memory of saying that, but I, but I do believe it for certain. If you look back, Donald Trump has said things that were untrue, and, he's, and he brags, and he's a vulgar. All that is true. I grant every bit of that. But I take, for example, the, the so-called Russian hoax. Three years of this, for three years, this country was tied up on the basis of a dossier that we now know was paid for ultimately by the Democratic Party. We now know that the FBI understood that it was reliable intelligence. I'm sorry to go into the details here, but there's really no other way that the FBI misrepresented, willfully, knowingly misrepresented the findings of this so-called Russian dossier to a FISA court, which is a secret court to which our intelligence agencies must go before they pursue certain kinds of actions. We now know that a member of the FBI doctored an email because he has confessed to doing so now uh, in, in all. So there you have our intelligence, American intelligence agencies willfully attempting to pervert the outcome of a presidential election. They're going after Donald Trump because somehow or other they feel that they are the guardian of the country and that he is not. And I can tell you one other place where that happened, and that is Chile where Augusto Pinochet believed that the military was the guardian of the constitution and of the country and Salvador Allende was not. Now, this country is in Chile. And honestly, as best I, I have been told that the Chilean constitution was actually open to that interpretation that Pinochet, that, that, that the military is the ultimate guarantor of this country, set all that aside. They'd be horrified by the comparison between themselves and Augusto Pinochet but I don't see I don't see that it's out of out of place at all. There's a, there was a real attempt 
by American intelligence agencies at a minimum to thwart and in the end to bring down a sitting president, item one. Item two, abetting this effort were all the mainstream media, cheering them on were the universities. So all the elite opinion, all the, not all, there are always going to be exceptions. There are honorable people scattered here, there, and everywhere. But broadly speaking, elite opinion, people who command, people who, people who enjoy the benefits of American life almost more than any other American, by which I mean the faculty of our great universities, journalists, I don't know what you think about journalism, but I think it's a wonderful way to lead your life, actually, to be paid to ask questions and write the answers and investigate fascinating stories. All of them, all of them participated in this huge perversion of justice. And now we're meant to, and, and Donald Trump was impeached on the basis of, well, he was impeached on that and he, 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 he was crude in a telephone call with the president of Ukraine. My point is that Donald Trump is far more sinned against than sinning, that as you said, he indicates the kind of symptoms of, of underlying problems in this country, but fundamentally, really, what did he do? Has he, did he disobey any court? No. Every time courts ruled against him, his administration regrouped and, and attempt to address, uh, address the problems that courts identified in their administrative actions. <clears throat> he, behaved, he behaved actually like a relatively weak, democratically elected president. His mouth, his manner, that was one thing. But if you can't distinguish between actions and words, you're in trouble in the first place in the political game. But against that, he was up, he was up against this whole interlocking structure of press and Democratic Party and universities. And they were pulling dirty tricks. They were pulling dirty tricks. Yeah, because they know best. Anyway, um, I, 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 I said I was very interested uh, in, in President Reagan's place in history as you see it. And think back to the troubled times of the late 1970s, the Cold War, stagflation, uh, general sort of greyness about the future right across the Western world. Uh, I remember as a young man listening to one of those presidential debates, it was uh, Jimmy Carter as president uh, and uh, uh, Ronald Reagan as the challenger. Uh, and uh, uh, Carter listed a whole uh, pages of things that he was worried about that made him sound negative. And that brilliant one-liner from Reagan, there you go again. Right. Um, and right. Right. he was a sunny personality, as I understood it, who somehow spoke to the American people and drew out the better angels drew out the willingness to cooperate, the willingness to you know, be positive. He engendered hope. I don't know how any culture can survive without hope. And the way in which the media and the technocrats and the elites today talk about our future, you'd wonder why our kids aren't, well, we shouldn't be surprised by the despair that they're facing. It shows up in the, in the figures, anxiety, depression, self-harm. We've stripped them of hope. Reagan seemed to personify hope, mourning in America again. Can you give us a feel for 
what he was like as a person to work with closely. Plainly, he had enormous regard for you and you did for him. You, what, some 300 speeches you helped him prepare and deliver. Some of them are very profound. They connected with people. They, you know, if a leader has to you know, have a vision, inspire others, he can only do it if he can translate the vision if he can draw people with him and so they understand what it is and they want to work with that leader to make it happen, how, d- how did you find him as a person? He plainly had a great impact on you. He was, he was amazingly serene and relaxed and jovial. There, there, there's a kind of um, contradiction, paradox in Ronald Reagan. But the first, when you walk into, walked into the Oval Office, well, I don't know. Did you ever watch that show? I think it was in the 90s called The West Wing, the American show. It was based yes. on a fictional president. All right. And it was it got the feel of the White House mostly correct. People are rushing around from meeting to meeting and taking important phone calls. And the other bit it got right, of course, John, was that the uh, the speechwriter, chief speechwriter is played by Rob Lowe. And it is true that the speechwriters are always the best looking people in any administration. I want you to know oh, that. Oh, absolutely. But, I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But the the one bit that the West Wing television show got wrong, at least wrong about the Reagan West Wing, was that the television show, all this tension and busyness and sense of important issues at stake would peak in the Oval Office in the in the person of Martin Sheen, who played the president himself, who at least once in each episode lost his temper or gave some impassioned speech. And in the Reagan White House, you'd be in Busy, important, he opened the door to the Oval Office, and there was a man who was completely serene, utterly relaxed, and no matter what was happening out in the world, the first thing that he would do is tell some sort of joke or make some, some kind of lighthearted remark. The first thing he would, he would do at the beginning of every meeting was just put everyone at ease. So he was, he was just remarkable that way, the most relaxing and yet at the same time, invigorating place in the Reagan White House was the Oval Office in the presence of Ronald Reagan himself. The serenity, the self-confidence was just, just astonishing. At the same time, and what quite often gets missed about him is how competitive he was, how steely he could be. So bear in mind, his father is a shoe salesman and an alcoholic. And by the time Ronald Reagan is in his 20s, he's a movie star because that young man moved fast. And when he goes into politics, the first office he runs for is governor of California. And he's expected to lose because he's taking on a very popular governor and he beats him by a million votes. And then, of course, he, he takes in, in essence, he takes on the Soviet Union. So there's a kind of determination about Ronald Reagan that's coupled with that sunniness of character. And then the other bit of it is, last bit, I'm sorry, I could go on for ages about Reagan, but um, the other bit is, people would laugh if I said this. I don't think, you won't laugh. I won't let you laugh, John. Ronald Reagan was an intellectual in the strict sense of the world. He would never have been at home in the faculty lounge at Harvard or Yale, for sure. But he was an intellectual in the following sense. Ideas mattered to him. And all his life, 
he read widely and he wrote constantly, which in my experience is the way you really think, think ideas through. He starts as a man of the left, he thinks and reads his way over to the right, and he really becomes convinced of the importance of free markets, of individual liberty, of the fundamental goodness of the United States, of the importance of standing up to Soviet communism. It's only half a dozen, half a dozen real principles that animate <clears throat> all his actions, but he really believes them. And once he fought his way to a first principle, he acted on it. So this is a man whose principles were relatively few, but very powerful and totally authentic. That's a really interesting set of insights. The first comment I think I would make is that, um, uh, and plainly you helped him craft some of those lines and some of those remarkable speeches. Um, but uh, I can say this, that the role that you played was only to help, this is not to demean it, because you did it brilliantly, was not to make Reagan someone he wasn't or to imbue him with a brilliance he didn't have it was to help him really bring that to bear. So in a sense, you were enlarging his capabilities, uh, bringing them, helping to bring them to life so that you saw the real Reagan and he had the most effect. So that's a way of saying I have a high regard for what you did for him and don't see it as detracting in any way at the same time from his leadership. The reality is that he had a very profound effect on the world and you can't make those brilliant and insightful remarks and summarise complex issues and get to the heart of, of, of great and massive and weighty matters uh, in such simple language without a very, very fine mind. So I've never bought the idea that he was somehow dumb. He wasn't. He was, oh, no, 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 no. He was highly intelligent. He, mm. there was one, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, I can remember. It doesn't matter, though. But there was one, uh, he gave a radio talk. He loved radio. He just loved radio. And in some ways, it was the medium that he enjoyed the most. And he gave a radio talk, five-minute radio talk each Saturday. It was three pages and four lines. That was our assignment. If you wrote five lines, you had to cut one. If you went to three pages, you had to add four lines. Because three pages and four lines at Ronald Reagan's pacing was five minutes. All right. And we wrote something on economic, we, the speechwriters, there were five or six of us on staff at any given time. And so, again, don't don't make too much of our job was to give Ronald Reagan to himself, so to speak. Yeah. Take mm. the principles, the principles, the voice was already clear. The principles were already in place by the time he became president. We just saved him time and disproved it. We sent over a radio talk on the economy, as I recall. And he sent it back with a note saying, I thought this week I'd like to talk about something else. And paperclip to that were a couple of pages. Uh, yellow legal pad in which the president had written his own radio talk in his black felt pen longhand. And we passed that around. I don't know how you are as a writer, John, but <coughs> I and my fellow speech, we agonized over everything we wrote. We'd write it and rewrite it. And Ronald Reagan had written this beautifully formed five minute radio talk. And he'd crossed out and rewritten maybe four words plus one line he, he had just sat down and written what he wanted to say. He was just, he was just, he was good. He was just very talented with, with words and public communication. The, the uh, Again, because you're a professional, you, you saw this. 
you cottoned onto it right away. But I contrast Reagan with, for example, George W. Bush, who gave some marvelous speeches. But as when he became president, nobody on the White House staff, and including George W. Bush himself, if it makes sense to put it this way, they didn't know what he sounded like. There wasn't a voice there. And so speeches for him, they had to work on that. They were kind of creating the voice as they went along. Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan was Ronald Reagan before he became president. You knew what he sounded like. You knew the, we speech writers, you knew what he sounded like. You knew the pacing. When I wrote the Brandenburg Gate speech, the tear down this wall speech, first of all, I wouldn't have written it for anybody else. When I worked for George Bush, then vice president, on any foreign policy speech, the first thing I'd hand it to him and we'd discuss it, but the first thing he'd do was say, has state cleared this? Have you cleared this with state, with the State Department? And of course, Ronald Reagan didn't actually, when it came to it, he wanted to hear what his advisors had to say. Well, when it came to it, he wanted to say what he believed needed to be said, not what the State Department thought. Okay, so only Reagan, I would only have written it for Reagan, only Reagan would have delivered it. But the the point is that all of us speechwriters could, I, I, this, I, all of this will sound crazy to us, but again, you were in politics, you'll know what I mean. You could hear Ronald Reagan as you wrote for him. Yeah. Yes. You could hear I him in me. your ear. Yeah. yeah, this paragraph will work for him. This paragraph, yeah. no, that won't work. That's too academic or it's too this, it's not, that's Reagan. That's, that's not, we could do that. We could do that because he was a fully formed I don't want to say politician. He was. He was. He had a voice. It was a fully formed, fully articulated voice. So a man of great conviction, of intelligence, massive communication skills, and comfortable in his own skin. Comfortable and hard work. Hard work. Dis despite the calmness, and serenity, effectively, you see, because again, the too many people, too many of the wrong people write history. It's far too easy for young people to have, well, let me rephrase that. It's very hard for young people to have a full appreciation of what he, together with Britain, actually achieved. They overcame the threatening totalitarian regime of the age, which really did present enormous dangers to the world. That was a remarkable achievement. Now we face enormous challenges again we need leaders of that conviction, intelligence, beliefs, if you like. And I'm wondering whether we'd even recognize them now. I'm sure many people would, but there are many who are determined not to let it happen. Oh, that's true. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm generally, I don't know if this is the Reagan training, but um, I'm actually optimistic. Donald Trump has all kinds of virtues. And I've said again and again, he was more sinned against than sinning. I, I supported him with certain reservations here and there, but I supported Donald Trump. Still in all, if it seems extremely likely, he leaves office as the defeated incumbent, the next generation of talent in the Republican Party is spectacular, in my opinion. There is Senator Ted Cruz, no one is more intelligent or better spoken. 
Ben Sass. Nobody has a more Ben Sass. I should mention, I say this as though you know exactly. Of course, you will, but perhaps some of our listeners won't. Ben Sass, senator from Nebraska. Nobody more creative in the way he thinks about politics and economics. Tom Cotton, senator of Arkansas. Harvard undergraduate, Harvard Law School, and then tours of duty in the United States Army. This is a guy who's very bright and has served the country under fire and represents a rural, hardworking state and also has a great deal of charm. My new hero is Ron DeSantis, the current governor of Florida, who uh, Harvard, Yale, and then United States Army, as I recall, no, maybe Navy, again, military, served in Congress. Ron DeSantis is this marvelous figure because he's he's built like a fire plug and he has a kind of gravelly voice. So it, it's easy to imagine him on a tractor or driving a truck. And in fact, he has this absolutely first-rate mind with a fancy training. But again, he's he's served the country in bearing arms and is charming and smart and well-spoken and has the distinction in Florida of having uh, been elected governor of Florida. He believes, he said repeatedly, that he believes his victory margin was delivered by African-American women because he was promising to reform education and he understood that African-Americans were stuck in bad schools, bad public schools. So the, the, there's, there, there's talent. Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, served in the Trump administration as ambassador to the United Nations. Oh, I'll tell you, John, this is, this, I think this would interest you, actually. Here in California, where California is such a big state that it has a congressional delegation, delegation of 53, yes, 53 seats in the House of Representatives, and Republicans only held Going into this election, Republicans only held seven, as I recall. There are still a few seats that are, a couple of seats are in doubt, but it looks as though Republicans, in an overwhelmingly Democratic state, Republicans seem to have picked up four seats. Two of those seats, the victorious Republican candidates, Korean women. And two of those seats, the victorious Republican candidates, Hispanic men. So this notion that, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going, now I'm going, but I just wanted you to be aware of this because I think this is just fascinating. This notion that the Republican Party is trapped among, frankly, only white people, which is shrinking as a proportion of our population, was dis- disproven in the last election, disproven. Donald Trump's Republican Party put up candidates that included a couple of Korean women in Orange County and a couple of Hispanic men, uh, one in Los Angeles County, as I recall, and another in our Central Valley, our agricultural region. Sometime in the next decade, the Republican candidate for governor of California, the Republican candidate is going to be an African-American or the son or daughter of immigrants from Vietnam or Korea or China or India. And it's going to change everything. I'm, I'm actually quite, it, to me, that, that's almost the most important outcome of this election, that the ideas appeal to people, that the ideas have power among recent immigrants, the ideas of free markets and individual liberty and all of that. It's, we in this country hear over and over again and have for a quarter of a century now 
that all immigrants from Mexico and all immigrants from Korea are, are going to be enthralled to the Democratic Party forever. And you know what? They're human beings. They think they vote voters. It, it, I just I I think it'll be all right in the end. There are fights to be fought, but it'll be all right in the end. I can't help feeling even in California. <laughs> Peter, I think my response to that would be to say uh, what you've just said is a great tonic. It's a powerful reminder because even I find it hard sometimes to feel confident we can find our way forward properly. Uh, you've, you've just given us great hope. And without hope, you can go nowhere. And that was the great thing about Reagan. He offered hope. He drew out the best, but he did it with conviction and uh, with a steely determination, as you've said. And you played an enormous and positive role in that uh, and in um, where we go now. So you've been very kind. Oh, are, are, if you're wrapping this up, go ahead and wrap it up, John, because I've yapped on long enough. There's one last point that I thought would especially interest you. Okay, because go, of the go, party, go Because yeah. of the party you led. Now, I'm correct, am I not, that your party was the part, the traditional base of your party is the countryside. That's right. Farmers and, and great yeah. all right. I am one. This I'm is, on a farm right now, and we're harvesting wheat, which is what not what you would be doing in in your part of the world because it's not the northern this time hemisphere. Of year, up here, that's right. That's right. All right. So you're a farmer yourself. This, to me, is in some ways this sums up Ronald Reagan. Friends of mine at the Hoover Institution, where I work, uh, brought out a book a decade or so after Reagan left office called Reagan in His Own Hand. And it was a collection of letters, a selection of letters that Reagan wrote as president. And it turns out that he wrote close to 8,000 letters in his own hand as president. And what happened was that the woman who ran the White House Correspondence Unit, which would receive hundreds of letters a day from Americans to the president, would pull together half a dozen or a dozen of these that she considered representative. And they'd go with Ronald Reagan to Camp David each weekend, and each weekend he would answer a few of them in his own handwriting. Wow. And what's so, what's so striking about this is very few of these letters are to people whose names you would recognize. He's not working the rich crowd in New York or the famous crowd in Hollywood. He's not, he's not in correspondence with the intellectuals and in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or New Haven, Connecticut, overwhelmingly these letters are to ordinary Americans. So the dentist in Moline pops off about Reagan's economic program, and a week later there's a letter in his mailbox from the President of the United States explaining himself in detail. And so you look at Reagan's career, he's a radio broadcaster in, mid in the Midwest as a very young man, and then he becomes a movie actor, another popular medium. Incidentally, he always took his fan mail very seriously. When he didn't have time to answer it himself, his mother answered his fan mail for him, and he would sign really? it. That's right. And then he goes into television, another popular medium. And then he's corresponding with fans. And then as president, he's corresponding. Again, literally, he writes thousands of letters to ordinary Americans. So what he's doing there... He, if he were an Australian, he'd have, he'd have been in your party, too. He's in touch with ordinary people. Will they like this picture? Will they like that policy? 
What do they think about it? He's, he's, you know, Brian Mulroney, the prime minister of Canada, told the story at Reagan's funeral, which, of course, I attended, that Mulroney was having dinner one day with François Mitterrand, the president of France. And Mulroney said, well, you know, this man Reagan has a real feel for the American people. And François Mitterrand said, no, 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 no. It is much deeper than that. Ronald Reagan is in communion with the American people. And there's really something to that, I reckon. Well, Peter, you've given us some remarkable insights and powerfully reminded and me as much, I hope, as anybody else who's listening or watching this, that hope is important. Uh, despair is destructive. Uh, and uh, as you put it, the Republic is safe for a few more years because the American voting population has made certain that it is. Uh, and there are tremendous people lining up to serve. All of that is good news, uh, and I'm very thankful to you for bringing it to us. But I also want to pay tribute to you and the remarkable role that you've played in the past and continue to do uh, so today. So thank you very much indeed for your time. John, my pleasure. My pleasure. By the way, just, just in case I'm wrong and things go bad quickly, can you just save a little place in the in the back of your garden for me there? Just all I need is a small trailer. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.